we're reading the Bible from Matthew chapter 13 from verse 38. Now in the Bible that has the frame around the Holy Bible on the front cover, it's page 978. And in the other red Bible it is page 690. So it's Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. The heading is the sign of Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this great, with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd... His mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this uh, challenging and provocative passage from your word. We do pray that you would grant us understanding and that uh, we would live with Jesus as our uh, Lord of our lives. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Um, Last Sunday night, Cassie and I settled down in front of the television to watch the grand final. And I said to Cassie, uh, um, we want the Roosters to win. They're the guys in the red, white and blue, not the guys in the green. Uh, The Roosters, they're our team. Um, Why would the Roosters be our team? Why would I be a supporter of the Roosters? Well... I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, um, their territory, and uh, whilst I was growing up, my uncle played first grade for the Roosters. 
So that kind of settled it, that cemented it uh, for my life. For the rest of my life, I support the Roosters. However, uh, last Sunday, 10 minutes before the end of the game, with the score equal, um, even I could see the refereeing error, uh, which possibly robbed the, um, the Raiders of a grand final winning try and instead um, gave one to the Roosters. And so I switched teams. I, I really did. I, I just felt morally obliged to do so. I, I said to Cassie, look, we're going for the Raiders now. They're the guys in the green. Because I really wanted Canberra to score a converted try so that then the issue could be settled in extra time. And, uh, but that wasn't to be. But I had to ask myself the question, well, how committed am I to the Roosters? Uh, you know, I've got this sentimental attachment to them. Um, I mean, I guess if the government census form had a question saying, what rugby league team do you identify with? I would, I'd certainly tick the Roosters box. I mean, I was, I was literally, I was born literally 750 metres from their leagues club. And I've got a family connection. And I like red, white and blue. But I never go to a game because... I'm really, I'm really not committed at all. Many people have the same attitude towards Jesus. Uh, in 2016, the, uh, in the census, more than half of the Australian population identified as being Christian. Yet, how committed to Jesus are they? Uh, it's easy for people to have a sentimental attachment, isn't it? Um, perhaps because they were christened as a baby or uh, maybe... People love the teaching of Jesus. I mean, who doesn't love the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Uh, who doesn't love the Sermon on the Mount? People enjoy at Christmas time the um, festivities, the baby in the manger and so on. But they follow Jesus in the same way that I follow the roosters. They're, they're not opposed to him but neither are they really committed to him. Uh, however, last week in Matthew 12, we saw that having a lukewarm commitment, being lukewarm towards Jesus, just doesn't cut it. It's not an option. Um, why don't you open up your Bibles at uh, Matthew chapter 12. Have a look. We're going to go back to verse 30 for a moment from last week where Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters now when you think about it that's a pretty bold statement isn't it in fact it's a polarizing statement it's very polarizing because you are either for Jesus or you are against Jesus there is no in-between option there is no fence that you can sit on. Uh, it's one or the other. Now, remember the context from last week. The context was the, uh, the driving out of a demon from a man and the mixed reactions uh, from people who witnessed that saving act um, by Jesus. Uh, there were the ordinary people who saw the driving out of the demon, and they were, uh, they, uh, they wondered about Jesus. They, they asked themselves the question, well, could he be 
Could he possibly be the son of David whom we've been waiting for? And, and the Pharisees, they saw the, this miraculous sign and they also saw that their position was under threat. And so they, they were saying, no, no, he, he couldn't be the son of... It's by Beelzebub. It's by the prince of demons uh, that he has done this. But in verse 28... Jesus said it was actually by the Spirit of God that he has saved this poor man. Now, all sins are forgivable. And that's because God is merciful, more than we can imagine. And it's, he's able to be merciful towards us because the death and the resurrection of Jesus, because of who Jesus is, God the Son... His death is more than sufficient to pay for the sins of any person, of all people who turn to him. And his resurrection shows that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as the sufficient payment for sin. That is how we are forgiven. That is the basis of forgiveness. But it demands faith. It demands repentance. It demands a response. And last week we saw that the Pharisees witnessed the saving work of God by his spirit and they rejected it, which actually just doesn't leave any other place to go because there is no other salvation. There is no other forgiveness on offer. And so that's where we got to last week. And I think it helps us to understand what happens in today's passage, which we'll now turn to. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 38, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they then said to Jesus, Teacher, we want a miraculous sign from you. I mean, they've just rejected the saving work of God's Spirit, uh, declaring it to be the work of Satan. And now they're saying, we just want a sign from you. Really? Really? Uh, this is obviously not a request which comes from a sincere heart. And so in verse 39, Jesus answered, and I want to read this answer for you. It's in verse 39, uh, where he says... Um, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah... And now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. So, um, Jesus takes them back into the Old Testament, doesn't he? What is the sign of Jonah? What's he talking about with that? Now, some people, uh, of course, dismiss Jonah as being 
uh, just Jewish mythology. I mean, you know, um, that, that a man should survive for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. That's ridiculous. That's impossible. That couldn't happen. And that, of course, is the very point. Um, that he did survive. That is the sign. That is the sign. And he went to Nineveh to preach to people, uh, to pagans in Nineveh. Nineveh, by the way, is, is it's a, these days it's an archaeological site in Iraq. Um, it's, it's now called Nabus Yunus, which means Prophet Jonah. And you can visit there. Although the, I, my guess is the Department of Foreign Affairs would probably recommend you don't visit there. Um, they may not be able to guarantee your safety. But as Jonah went to the pagans in Nineveh preaching repentance, he himself was the sign. He himself was the miracle. And so too, says Jesus, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Which is, of course, a reference to his resurrection from the dead. Now, some people point out that, in fact, uh, Jesus was in the grave for less than three days and only for two nights. Think about it. Uh, he um, was buried on, on the, uh, the Friday, so part of Friday. Uh, he was in the tomb for all of Saturday and he was resurrected Sunday morning. So how many days, full days is he in, in the tomb? One full day, two part days. How many nights was he in the tomb? Two nights, Friday night and Saturday night. So how can Jesus say that uh, so too the Son of Man will be three days and three nights? In the, it's, it's Jewish idiom. It's Jewish way of speaking. It's Jewish way of expressing things. Uh, whereby a part of the day is sometimes spoken of as being the full day, the, the day and the night. It's just the way that they say things. We don't talk that way and I wouldn't recommend you go around making your hotel bookings that way. You'll end up paying more money. But that was Jewish idiom. Jesus' point, though, is that the pagan Ninevites repented. Whilst Israel's leaders in the presence of God's anointed one, anointed by the Spirit, have actually failed to repent. Now, the Bible teaches that on the day that Jesus returns in judgment, that there is a sense uh, in which we Christians, those who put our trust in Jesus, are somehow involved in that judgment. And so... To their great shame, the great shame of the generation of Israel's leaders that Jesus was speaking to, to their great shame and to their horror, they will find themselves being condemned by the pagan Ninevites at the resurrection. The pagan Ninevites who repented at the preaching of Jonah. Because now someone greater is here. Now someone greater than Jonah is here. Now someone, in verse 42, greater than even Solomon is here. Uh, where Jesus speaks about um, the pagan queen of Sheba uh, who travelled 
from uh, in their uh, world understanding to travel from the ends of the earth to visit uh, King Solomon to hear from his wisdom and now a greater king is present. And so too will Sheba, the queen of the south, condemn that generation on the day of judgment. You see, they have received a sign already. The, the, the driving out of the demon is the sign. It's, it's the sign that there is now a regime change. It's the sign that the rule of Satan, which began with the fall of man, uh, that uh, the, the one who is described as being the, the prince of this world, that his rule is now coming to an end. And this is the point that Jesus made in verse 28 when he says, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then this is because the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's a regime change taking place. This is that which the Old Testament prophets had looked forward to, the beginnings of the rule of God. Now, all of this helps us, I believe, to understand what happens, what Jesus says next uh, in verse 43. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first, and this is how it will be with this wicked generation. And we read that and we kind of scratch our head, and so we think this is all stuff about demonology, and you know, one demon's being driven out, and the house is left empty, and it's, it comes back with seven other demons. What, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, again, what is the context? The context is the response of Israel to the driving out of the demon from this poor demon-possessed man. That is the context. And their responses were, well, who is this Jesus? You know, is he the son of David? Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Um, no, no, he's not the son of David. He's actually doing it by the power of Beelzebub. They're the responses but neither of them the right response to the driving out of the demon. Um, friends, it's one thing for us to appreciate Jesus, uh, to admire his teaching, as many people do, or, or even to marvel at his miracles. In a survey conducted uh, three years ago, about one-third of Australians said that they believed in the miracle of the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 33% of Australians said that they believed in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Yet, do 33% of Australians live with Jesus as their Lord? I mean, I, only God knows the stat, doesn't he? <laughs> but I... I I'd hazard to guess it'd be close to 3% rather than 33%. The purpose of all of Jesus' miraculous signs, in this case, the driving out of the demon, 
is to um, not leave us wondering, not leave us just marvelling at it, but to actually lead us to faith and repentance. Not to neutrality. Not to just shrugging it off as something interesting which Jesus did, but to leave it at that. A vacuum in our lives. Let alone to proclaim it to be from Satan. No, like the man whose final condition in verse 45 is worse than the first, so too, says Jesus, will it be with this wicked generation. They have seen the miracle of, of God. They've seen the Spirit saving this man and they do nothing about it. You're in a worse position than if it hadn't happened in the first place. Now, have you noticed that some, peop- some church people, um, some religious people, don't like hearing other Christians talk about sin and judgment? I- I've noticed that. And I've noticed people say, well, you know, the, the Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom I follow, he doesn't talk about judgment. He only talks about love. And I choose to follow him. Well, I, it seems that they haven't read this chapter. And such people may think that a story, therefore, about Jesus and his, and his family... Jesus getting together with his mum and his brothers, that that would be a very um, homely and a very cosy story. However, that is not the case. Turn to verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's not very homely, is it? I mean, uh, what do we make of this? Is Jesus being rude, disrespectful to his family? Well, no, I mean, I think we can be assured that Jesus um, always honoured his mother and that he loved his brothers. Uh, Here is Jesus and there's a a group of people and they're inside a house and everyone's welcome to come in. Put yourself in that situation. If you were there... Uh, where would you want to be? If the Lord Jesus is present, if you're welcome to come into the house, where would you want to be? I'd want to be inside the house, wouldn't you? At the feet of Jesus, listening to what he had to say so that we could, I could learn more about God. And, but where are his mother and his brothers? Mary and her other sons, they're standing outside. They just want to talk to him when where they should be is inside the house, listening to Jesus and obeying what he says. Because that's, by the way, this puts pay to any talk of Mary's perpetual virginity, (laughs) that she had 
other sons. Um, Jesus had brothers. But the reason that Jesus came was not to be born of Mary. He was born of Mary, but that was not the purpose uh, for which he came. Uh, You see, who are Jesus' family? Uh, If you are someone who is committed to Jesus in faith and repentance, then you are. You are united with Jesus in his death because his death he died for you. You are united with Jesus in his resurrection because he was raised to life for you and for your salvation. You belong to the family. So that as he says, you are his mother, his brother, his sister. And if you have not committed to Jesus, then you do not belong to his family. You see, Jesus is a polarising figure. Um, Back in chapter 10, um, verse 34... Uh, you know, we know that Jesus came to bring us peace, bring peace between God and man. And when we turn to Christ in faith, we in, enter into this family relationship which brings us into peace with one another. Jews and Gentiles, people of all different races and backgrounds, united in peace with one another. But Jesus in chapter 10 verse 34 says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And that is because Jesus is polarising. The message of Jesus is divisive. It evokes different responses to Jesus. There are multiple ways we can respond to Jesus. The right response is commitment For as we saw last week, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the one in whom we find rest for our souls and forgiveness through his blood shed for us on the cross. The right response is to be committed to Jesus. How how do we commit ourselves to Jesus? Well, if I can can boil it down to its very essence... uh, Without Jesus, we all live as boss, as ruler of our own lives. That's the nature of sin. But when we understand what Jesus has done for us on the cross, God's grace and mercy towards us, then to repent, to commit ourselves to Jesus, means we take the crown off our own head and we hand it to him to be the one who is the ruler of our lives. We need to be committed to Jesus. That is the right response. But for others, Jesus is an offence. For he calls us to humble ourselves, to to, uh, admit that we have fallen short of of God's glory, uh, to repent of our pride, and the idols of our hearts. And so they reject him. Sometimes very actively. Sometimes they reject Jesus by simply dismissing those who share his message 
as you talk to others about Jesus at school and at work and in your neighbourhood and in your family. When they dismiss you, it's because they reject Jesus. Like those who criticise Jesus, the religious leaders, instead of turning to him in commitment, they sought to find fault. He's working on the Sabbath. He's working for Beelzebub. He hasn't given us a good enough sign as they plotted to kill him. And then there are those who are indifferent towards Jesus. They don't really care. Or maybe, uh, like my commitment to the roosters, they're happy to tick the box. Um, They may even play at being Christians, look like they're Christians, pretend to be Christians, but they don't really want Jesus to interfere with their life. They want to keep the crown on their own head. Now, I don't uh, necessarily know um, where you're at in terms of uh, your uh, regards to Jesus. But let me just say that mere cultural Christianity is, is not an option. For as Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. I cannot claim to be a true roosters follower just because of my family connection and because of where I was born, so too neither is someone a true follower of Jesus because of their family tradition uh, or even coming to church. The question is, are you truly committed to Jesus? There's no middle ground. There is no fence to sit on. There is no valid, lukewarm response to Jesus, for either Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one in whom alone we find forgiveness and rest for our souls, or he isn't. It's one or the other. Either Jesus is the sign of Jonah, the one whom God has raised from the dead as Lord and judge of all people, or he isn't. It's one or the other. And so we each need to make our own decision about this. It's imperative that we do. Because if Jesus is the sign of Jonah, then your response to Jesus is simply the most important decision of your life. It's difference between judgment and forgiveness. Your judgment, your forgiveness, eternally. This is not something to be lukewarm about. This is not something to be half-hearted about. This is not something, a decision that can be kept on being put off. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. The decision is one which needs to be made. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of Jesus' teaching. Uh, For we know, Lord God, that uh, if he is who he claims to be, uh, then there is no other option than to be fully, totally committed to Jesus. We pray for each one of us here that uh, we would not be ambivalent, that we would not be vague, that we would not be careless, uh, but rather we would be those 
who would take that crown off our own head, hand it to Jesus, so that we indeed would be um, members of his kingdom, members of his family forever. And we pray this in his name. Amen.